What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. I just finished my episode with John Kasman of Kasman Capital. Um, he lives out in Cincinnati, and he's syndicating uh, pretty sizable multifamily deals out in the Midwest and the Southeast uh, in numerous markets. And we have a long conversation about uh, just large multifamily, uh, specifically the syndication model, um, and how he's attracting capital. And he uses the phrase attracting capital rather than raising capital. Um, and there's actually a pretty uh, important distinction between the two. And you'll hear why why he believes that's the case. And um, we also talk about John's uh, six C's of raising capital, um, which is which is a really good few minutes uh, towards the end of the podcast. Uh, and we just talk a lot about his business, how he got into the got into the space, um, his prior career in marketing, and how there's a lot of skill sets that he pulled from his marketing career and applied to real estate investing, uh, specifically growing a real estate syndication business. Um, so a lot of actionable stuff in here, and it's a really good episode. Um, before you listen, please be sure to uh, leave a rating and a review if you haven't already. And uh, if you want a copy of my free ebook, you can do that by leaving a rating and a review, screenshotting it, and sending it to multifamilywealth at gmail.com. It's well worth the few minutes it takes to do so. Um, I put a lot of time into it and shared a lot of uh, what I consider to be pretty actionable tips in there in terms of finding deals and financing deals and actually effectively hiring property managers and managing property managers. So if that's something you're interested in, please be sure to leave a rating and a review and send it to multifamilywealth at gmail.com. Anyways, enjoy the episode and I'll see you guys next week. Family Wealth Podcast, where we talk about how to start, build, and scale your real estate business. Here is your host, Axel Ragnarsson. All right, welcome to this episode of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by John Kasman. How are we doing, John? I am doing great. Thank you for having me today. Oh, absolutely. I look forward to our chat. Uh, I think you have a really unique background, especially as, especially as it relates to marketing and and how that relates to the real estate syndication business. So um, I hinted at it, but why don't you share uh, your background with the listeners and maybe how you got into real estate and what your business looks like today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a multifamily investor. I help other people really get into multifamily investing more passively, but also help people who are active in looking to grow, maybe starting to attract capital for their deals. So I do help people from that aspect. My background is in marketing, as you alluded to. So I spent about 13 to 15 years in corporate America working on marketing campaigns for large companies and large brands like Nike and General Motors, uh, Coors Light and other brands, really helping to develop campaigns, overseeing million dollar, multi-million dollar budgets and uh, having a lot of success in that. But ultimately, I realized that while I was having fun with what I was doing and, and building great campaigns, I wasn't building any kind of equity and I wasn't, you know, really insulating myself from the decisions of others. And you get to a point in your career where you realize you really need to start building for yourself, for your family, focusing on the legacy, the impact you're going to have long term, and not just, you know, for a title or for your W-2 income. So it became important to start investing in real estate for me, primarily for passive income, but really just as a hedge against what was going on in my career. Um, I saw a lot of people either lose their jobs or get transferred, things like that starting to happen. And I wanted to make sure that my success and my ability to take care of my family wasn't solely tied to a W-2 job. So investing, and I'm sure many of your listeners would understand that, but investing became really important to me from that standpoint. And here we are today. That's great. Uh, so what did that actual first foray into real estate look like? Um, you know, maybe talk about what that first deal was and, and maybe how that progressed into, you know, raising other people's money and, and actually, you know, taking down some of these larger deals. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even prior to the first deal, one of the big things was um, really that shove, right? You know, I'm listening to a book right now. It's uh, um, The Five Minute Rule by Mel Robbins. And Mel talks about you really needing a, a shove, you know, more than just a little nudge to, to make something happen. But you need a shove. You need someone, something to push you. For me, 
that shove came in 2008. You know, I was working at General Motors overseeing campaigns. And as you all know, the economy started to turn. And I was at the company at the epicenter in the city where it was really difficult as a marketer to find other jobs or other opportunities. And I kind of went through that process. And I distinctly remember once we had our, our final round of layoffs, our final round of big layoffs at that point, um, you know, I was told I was fine. And I went to an office or my office, and it was a red light on my phone. And when I saw that red light, I was paranoid, really, because I, I was told I was fine. I've got this voicemail. I'm like, dude, is they going to ask me to come to HR? So I spent 20 minutes, you know, heart starting to beat up, pound, you know, you just start getting really nervous and scared and all those emotions start to go through me. So I finally pick up the phone, listen to the voicemail. And it's actually one of my colleagues and he had just been let go. So it was very sad and somber. And he talked about how devastating it was. He had spent over 20 years with the company. He had no idea how he was going to take care of his family, pay for his medicine. And that was really the moment I said, you know what, while I feel sorry for the situation he's going through this is a sign that I can't rely on another job or a company to take care of me. So I have to find some way to create enough income, enough passive income, where I'm not worried about those kind of things. So that's what got me into real estate. The challenge for me was it was still 2008 in Detroit at the time. So looking for real estate opportunities, you know, everyone around me was paranoid, scared. No one's looking to buy. Everyone I knew who owned real estate was looking to sell. Um, and at a, after about a year, about six months to a year of that, I said, you know what, I think we need to change cities. You know, there aren't a whole lot of marketing jobs that are not automotive. I really need to diversify my professional career and my professional resume, as well as find better places to invest. So I moved to Chicago and I started looking at the neighborhood. So I spent about six to nine months really researching the neighborhoods, going to all the RIA events, you know, RIAs, the Real Estate Investor Associations, just really trying to learn all I could about where to invest in Chicago. And I came across a stat and it basically said out of the 77 distinct Chicago neighborhoods, only one didn't lose any value in 2008. Um, and I'm talking like 2007 to 2010, not just 2008. And that intrigued me. And I said, well, listen, I don't know what's going on in this neighborhood, but whatever it is, that's probably going to be a pretty stable place to invest. So that area is called North Center. I locked in on North Center. We ended up finding a two-unit building and that was the first property that my wife and I bought when we got to Chicago. So we bought a two-unit building. Uh, we did an FHA loan, which was uh, great because we only had to put 3.5% down. We did what's called a house hack. So we lived in one unit. We rented out the other unit. And we didn't know we could do all this, by the way. So when we started looking, we actually had more money saved. So the money that we had saved for a down payment, we just used that for renovations. So we renovated our unit. We redid the kitchen completely. We did a lot of exterior renovations, spruced up the place. And we created a lot of equity in that property. And that equity really allowed us to open up our eyes to say, okay, this is real. This isn't just hypothetical things that I've read in books for years. This isn't just random people I meet at meetups that are telling me these, you know, these myths and these great stories. This is real. This is possible. We've done it. Now, how do I go do it again? And that really kind of opened us up to getting more and more into real estate. Gotcha. I mean, that's a hell of a story. Um, and you're right. You do need a shove. And, you know, for some people, it's usually a triggering event that causes them to quit their job or finally buy a property or whatever it may be. Um, and that's certainly motivating. I mean, being a GM in 08 has got to be a nerve wracking experience. Um, so what year did you buy this first duplex down in Chicago? Yeah, that was 2000. 12, 2012. 2012. Okay. So it took, yeah. So it took about three, three years from the time I made a decision to invest in real estate to actually find it, which I mean, partially was I spent the first year trying to leave Detroit and trying to get a job <laughs> somewhere else. And I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't even get interviews, you know, cause people looked at my resume and it was like, oh, you only have automotive experience. And I'm like, all right, well, the first thing I do is figure out my life, you know, before we, yeah, right. before we get the real estate, I just figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And uh, once I got some of those major things figured out, then I, then I could lock my attention into real estate. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and you, you probably needed a job, right? For the W-2 income to qualify for, for the loans. Definitely and, need a job. Yeah, yeah exactly. Definitely need a job. And I wanted to live in it too. So I was renting at the time. So for me, it was like, I, I knew specifically I wanted to get a small multifamily property and I wanted to live in it. But the challenge was, I didn't know what city I was going to be living in. So I had to yeah. figure out, am I going to, am I going to be in Detroit? Am I going to move to Chicago? Am I going, where am I going? So I had to figure some of that stuff out first. Exactly. No, that's great. Um, so what, so walk us past this first duplex. So that's 2012. Um, you know, when did you decide to start, you know, 
either raising money or trying to get into syndication or you wanted to actually, you know, do some larger deals, maybe talk about the path from 2012 to, you know, maybe doing your first large multifamily yeah. deal where you're raising some money. So 2012 was a two unit. So we, we, you know, did a lot of the work within the first six months or so. And then we saved up our money. So for us, every deal we bought, we used our own money. We saved our money. And then when we had enough money to buy another property, that's when we would start looking. So 2014 came, uh, we were, you know, pregnant with our first child. I said, we, I wasn't pregnant. Was pregnant. <laughs> I was doing most there. of the work. Yeah. 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 She, she did about 99.9% .9 of the work. Right. Um, you know, I showed up on day one and that was pretty much it. Uh, so we were pregnant, uh, even though she did all the work and we knew we wanted to get another property. We had saved our money and strategically for us, it was, we wanted to stay ahead of our lifestyle. So we were living below, below our means. We had a resident who was paying for the most, most of the mortgage. And with the baby, obviously, we expected our expenses to increase. So getting the second property really was a way to kind of cross off those expenses so we really wouldn't feel a change financially. So we found a three-unit building off-market through our, our real estate agent. And that was a $342,000 purchase. Three units, cash flowed about twelve hundred bucks a month after all expenses, including the the debt. Um, so we had a nice, you know, twelve hundred dollar, um, you know, increase, you know, in revenue from from that property there. So that worked really well. And at that point, that was the first true investment, right? Uh, so self managed it. It wasn't like I could just go downstairs and fix whatever. I actually had to plan this out. And by the way, my wife and I are both still working full time. Now we've got a newborn baby, so I'm really working through like, all right. Is this something we can even manage? Which we could. Yeah. And at that point, it became, it went, it went from, let's get a couple properties to supplement our income to how do I create a larger business out of this? So 2016, we acquired an eight unit building. I actually refinanced that first property. We created a ton of equity in that. So actually, I, I took a six figure line of credit, used that to buy an eight unit building. And then we hired a property management for that, that property. And the main reason we did that was I, at this point, knew that in order to grow, we would need to start work with other investors because we had, it took us another year and a half to save the money to go buy these properties. And we just couldn't keep moving at that pace, you know? Um, and I stopped looking for properties until we had the money in the bank account. So I wasn't even looking until we had a significant amount of capital sitting in the bank. So at that point, you know, we made a conscious decision to say, okay, how do I gain more experience? How do I gain experience with commercial real estate? So this is our first commercial real estate property. This was working with a property management company. And I felt like checking off those two boxes will put me in a position where I was comfortable starting to talk to investors about partnering and working together. Because up until that point, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, I had two properties, one I lived in. And I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't find a North Star to tell you this is the perfect neighborhood like that again, right? I mean, 77 neighborhoods, only one didn't lose value. You're not going to find a stat, stat like that. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to find a stat like that, right? <laughs> so it, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to appear where, you know, there's like huge neon signs pointing to you like, here's the place to invest, right? Um, so I didn't have that. And the other thing for me was like, all right, I did that for the, for the first property. The second property was a good neighborhood that was starting to, to improve and attract a higher quality resident, younger millennial demographic. And then a third one that was more blue collar. So each time I was kind of working down the scale from like an A class to like a B class, to like a C plus class neighborhood. And I also realized there were challenges that came and my C property was way harder than my A property when it came to managing requests and things like that. So in going through that process, I you know, had some learning curves and over thing, over things that I had to overcome. But at that point, I knew that was the next step. I kid you not, a month later, I ran into a guy, I met him, um, and I started to think about where I wanted to invest next. Cincinnati was one of those places. Um, I connected with a guy who was, who was local here. We sat down. He told me that he had just bought, well, I actually read that he had just bought like a, a five or six million dollar property. He raised a million bucks for it. And he was teaching people how to do the same thing. So at that point, I said, man, you know, I wasn't even thinking about a mentor. But if this guy has the experience to do what I'm trying to do, this seems like it would be a great fit. So I ended up working with him as a, as a, as a mentor. And at that point, that opened up my eyes to syndication. I never even thought about syndication. I didn't want to syndicate. I just wanted to 
be able to go bring some investors if I were to find another eight unit or a 12 unit or a 20 unit. That was really the range I was focusing in. But the world of syndication opened up the options. And I, I think he bought like a 180 unit or something like that a, a couple months later. And I was like, oh, you can do that? Like, didn't even know it was possible. And at that point, it was like, okay. So the next thing we did was actually 192 units. Wow. Um, and we're general partners on that. So it wasn't just us, but we came in and partnered with another group. And we were able to come and bring our marketing skills to the tables, helping with investor relations, helping with some of the, the market research and competitive analysis, things like that. And uh, yeah, but that, that opened us up, right? I mean, you had a chance to then go from my eight unit deal, fast forward, bring on the mentor, go through a lot of training, analyzed a ton of deals. And going through that really said, you know what? I've looked at probably 100 plus deals, haven't been able to find one that pencils. There's got to be other ways to to tackle this thing. So that's when I said, okay, well, let's talk to other people. What are they doing? Who's going through the same challenges? Maybe there's someone else that we can work with and partner with. And that really got us to the place we're at today. At least started that ball down this path. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot to unpack there. I mean, that's a hell of a story going from eight units to 192. Um, you know, you mentioned bringing your marketing skills, you know, a question I have that I wanted to ask you is, you know, what did you take away from your marketing career that helped you, you know, jump into the syndication business, maybe a little bit more easily or, uh, or, or allowed you to bring value to maybe some of the partners that you approached, uh, when trying to figure out how to take down one of these big deals? Well, I think the first thing is just understanding that, it's a business. You know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the real estate that we, we, we think that it's all about these terms and cap rates and, you know, NOI and all these other things. But at its core, it's a business and businesses are run by people and teams and systems and processes. So once you kind of break it down into those things, my experience working at a large corporate firm like General Motors and working at large advertising agencies and small advertising agencies where I oversaw things like, you know, our scope of work and, um, you know, oversaw our MSA agreements and had to staff up, you know, my team and, you know, overseeing the business side of things as well as the creativity and all of those elements. You know, that put me in a position where I could look at it and treat it very similarly when it comes to okay, it's a project, you know, and this is project management. What teams do I need? What people, what resources? How do we staff it? How do we structure it? What's the timelines? And go out and execute. What's the budget, right? So I think that really helped me make that transition. From a purely marketing standpoint, it's really understanding that the challenges that we face when it comes to real estate, particularly with real estate syndication, they're really marketing challenges. You know, um, if you don't have a deal, then it's a matter of how do you find a deal, right? And those are more sales or marketing tactics to, to come across a deal. And if you don't have the network today to raise that kind of capital, to be able to go and bring a million dollars or $2 million to a deal, then how do you go out and attract the network that you need? And I like to make sure I'm very clear in saying attract a network, not raising capital. I'm talking about attracting capital. And the difference is, inbound marketing versus outbound marketing. If you want to be a sales guy, you want to call everybody you ever met and let them know what you're doing and see if they want to invest $50,000, by all means, go ahead. But there's a simpler way to attract capital for deals and have people calling you. And that's what we really focus on from a marketing standpoint is how do you get people to call you and express an interest in investing versus you having to pick up the phone and call everyone you've ever met and try to get them to invest from that standpoint. Yeah. And I think that's a really key point uh, talking about attracting capital versus really raising or, or, or selling investors on investing in a deal, because those are two entirely different conversations when you're the one calling the investor versus them calling you. <laughs> um, and, you know, you know, a lot of that marketing, I'm sure, is, is goes to building a brand, building trust, um, building credibility, kind of documenting what you're doing and, and presenting that to potential investors in a way that makes them want to call you. Um, and you're right. Sometimes we forget that it is a business, right? And the product is a home for tenants to live. Um, and, and if you look outside of that, you know, the, the, the actual prospect is motivated sellers or sellers that are willing to sell and, and actually finding a product that's presentable to a, a potential tenant. And how do you frame a business around being able to do that at scale? Um, and marketing is the answer to that. And, and I, you're right. I think we've, we, we think of it as real estate investing sometimes rather than you know, this is a business um, and we have to treat it as such. So, 
So that's great. And I, I'd like to talk more about the, the deal itself. Maybe what market was it in? You know, why, why that building? Why that asset? What attracted you to it? Um, and how did you actually structure that deal with the investors that you found? Yeah, so so that deal was one that uh, the the operating partners they found it and they had it under contract, and I was talking to them and you know it was understanding what they needed, and it basically came up that they they could use some help, so I came on board and, and helped. But the reason I helped was two things. First and foremost, you asked about the market. So the market was in San Antonio, Texas, and San Antonio, as you know, is a Texas in general has seen a lot of great growth metrics that we look for, population growth, job growth, industry diversification, you know, fairly easy to do business, pretty landlord friendly. So a lot of the metrics we look for in the market, San Antonio has that. It's also very close to Austin, Texas. So there's some growth and some a little bit of rub off from its proximity to Austin as well, but it's more affordable. So we like the fact that it was in Texas, but not quite Dallas, where we felt there was a lot of competition, not quite Austin, where we felt like things were overpriced. And more importantly, our partners are located in that market. So they were local, and there's no way I would do a deal in Texas without someone who actually lived in that market. So those are the things that got me intrigued. The deal itself was kind of a, a you know, B, B product vintage, you know, 1980s construction. And we structured to deal with investors as a 70-30 split, 8% pref return. So it's a pretty standard way to, to do deals, but you know, 70% of that equity goes to the investors, 30% goes to the general partners after delivering on an 8% annual pref return, right? So pref is not a guarantee, but it's a hurdle. And it basically says the investors will receive the first 8% of profits before the general partners receive 30% of equity. And, uh, and that's the way we structure the deal. Got it. Um, so what did you learn on that first deal? What were some of the challenges that maybe you faced, um, you know, that you, that you didn't think you'd run into after analyzing all those deals and, and spending all that time learning and training? I mean, I'm sure there was something that, that came up that you couldn't have been prepared for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing is just the level of sophistication from our investors. You know, I mean, they were asking extremely intelligent questions, things some some of them I hadn't thought about. And to be completely candid, hadn't thought about some of the questions. And they were very sophisticated in the way they analyzed the deals. I remember I, I had a uh, a tracker of every question that I received. So I would write down a question. You know, if I didn't have the answer, I you know, I have to look it up or talk to the partners and come back with an answer to it. So I had a running tracker of the questions. And in a way, I think that if you would have told me that in advance, it may have created more fear where maybe, maybe I wouldn't have gotten started. Maybe I wouldn't have decided to move forward with it. But the reality is, is that once you're going, all of those hurdles you can jump over. It's a question, right? It's not that they're questioning you per se, but they're trying to understand the deal. They're trying to understand the risk. And you have to remove yourself from it because it's not about you and your preparedness, assuming that you've actually prepared. It's about someone making a decision. And you have to remove and detach yourself from that. You know, if someone decides to invest, that's their decision. And that's why it's important to attract capital because if you are talking to people who are in your network, then maybe there is more of a defense mechanism there because if it's a family member, they might just simply be evaluating you and how comfortable they feel with you in the deal and the knowledge that you've done versus kind of, you know, just looking at the deal and making a decision for themselves. And you have to get to that point. You're going to need to start with your friends and family. I want to be clear. You're going to have to start with some friends and family. You're not going to just go out and and call millionaires and billionaires and and get them to invest when you have no experience. So you have to start with people you know, like, and trust or who know, like, and trust you, I should say. But on the same note, you want to detach yourself from um, the criticism that is tied to their final decision. It's not on you. You're presenting an opportunity. And if you can position it like that, it makes it a lot easier to share deals if you know that you're just presenting an opportunity. You're not selling. This is not you being a better salesman. This is you presenting opportunities, anticipating questions, and being a great service provider. Um, and if you understand that, now you're just you're just reacting, just like if you were in your corporate W two job. Someone had a question about something. You either have the answer or you need to go get the answer. And if you, if you think about it that way, it becomes a lot easier and you can remove some of that pressure off your shoulders. 
Exactly. And, and I think sometimes people forget that, you know, it's going to be hard to raise capital, especially if you're talking about, you know, a 192 unit deal or a hundred unit deal or whatever the size is, you know, once you get into the multiple millions of dollars, if you haven't proven that you can execute at that level, you're right. You're probably going to need to start with the people that do know, like, and trust you. Um, and again, right. If those folks don't understand maybe real estate investing or, or understand just alternative investing in general, something that's outside of their 401k in the stock market, that might be a difficult conversation, but that's to be expected. Um, and again, like you're saying, right, it's an opportunity. It, you know, a no pressure approach is is paramount here. You're trying to attract capital, like you mentioned, and it's just a process, um, and it does take time, as I'm sure you know you've experienced and, and probably experienced in subsequent deals after that first one too. Um, so, you know, trying to segue into what you've done over the last few years and and what you've done after that specific deal. Um, you know, what does your business look like now in terms of the markets that you're looking in? Um, and, you know, if you're in the, the structure that you're putting to or the structure that you're using with your investors has changed, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing now to, to further scale the, the business now that you, you know, obviously got that first deal under your belt and, and it seemingly went well? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we we're up to you know, right over 900 units in our portfolio as, uh, as partners. Um, you know, for us, those deals are, you know, across Texas, Florida, South Carolina, and Ohio. Um, we certainly like the Midwest. I, I live in Cincinnati now and we like the Midwest a lot. So one of the things we're doing is we're focusing a little bit more on growing Midwest markets like Ohio, Kentucky, um, Indiana, in particular, Indianapolis. So we are looking at markets like that. They're seeing great growth, um, strong cash flow, uh, really good yield plays, um, but you know, still have some appreciation potential. You know, we don't want to be in markets where you know whatever you get today is what you're going to get. We certainly want to have some upside potential to it, uh, but we're not banking on it quite as much as maybe some of the other markets in the other regions of the country. Um, for us, you know, a lot of it is you know as we look at the growth and how we do that is trying to make sure we just really are tight with the the asset management side of things. So we have um, a partnership here locally where we're vertically integrated, which allows us a great amount of control over a deal. So we're really excited about future deals and deals that we currently have in the works on, on that front. And just trying to find ways to be smart, you know, trying to stay, find ways to continue to stay ahead of the competition, creating the right kind of partnerships that allow us to see the right kind of deals, evaluate the best opportunities that have already kind of been screened and provide the best investment opportunities for our investors. Gotcha. So when you're entering a new market, whether it's, you know, a market in the Midwest or Florida, um, yeah. how do you build out your you know network to start finding the deals? Um, maybe, you know, how do you educate your investors to your existing investors um, on that market and, and start raising money for a market? That's something that maybe they haven't invested in prior to that. So, I, I mean, it's a two part question, I guess. Maybe we'll start with the, the finding deals and building your network in the new market. What are some of the early steps you take um, to, to build that out? Well, I think the first thing is you have to understand what advantages you have in a market. So if you live in, let's say you live in New York and you want to invest in Texas, um, the first question is, well, who's your boots on the ground? You know, who's your team in Texas or are you doing everything? And if you're doing everything, that's fine. But are you flying out to Texas on a regular basis? Are you meeting with brokers and, and property managers and other folks locally that can help structure the team. So for me, the first thing is the team. When you're looking at a new market, who's the team? That is the number one thing that I'm looking at. The second thing is, you know, after you kind of have your team in place, you know, how are the deals slowing? What's the story in the market? Um, you know, is the city growing? Is the population growing? Is there development taking place? Who are the major employers? What's happening with their business? Are they growing? Are they shrinking? Are there new developments? Is there new infrastructure taking place? But you really want to get a sense of what's the market story? What's happening there? who's the team, and then they can help guide you into the sub-markets or where there are better opportunities than others so that you can really mine the right things. I think a mistake that people make sometimes is just finding a deal, any deal, and then trying to reverse engineer you know, those things. Sometimes you get lucky, but sometimes now that you have a deal, you're kind of trying to force something to work. Whereas if you already knew, hey, we're in the city. Here are the parts of the city that we really like. Here are the parts that we kind of want to avoid. Now you know whether a deal pops up. Is it in your green zone or is it in your red zone? And you can kind of make a decision even to analyze that deal once you've already made that determining factor. But a lot of folks will just start 
They'll talk to brokers. They'll start getting deals sent to them. They're analyzing the deals and then they're trying to figure out, okay, well, where is this in the city? Oh, this is a high crime area or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I would start by getting your team together. And then second, making sure that you understand that local market. No, that's, that's great. And I do, I do think a lot of people go and, uh, and reverse engineer, like you mentioned, where, you know, maybe you're interested in a broader market, like, you know, Northern Florida or something like that. And then you just start looking at any deal that a broker sends you and, you know, you don't really have a crystal clear criteria of what, you know, what cities and then within that city, what zip codes and, you know, what neighborhoods, like, where are you actually interested in looking and work backwards? And that's going to make your search easier when you actually go out and start looking for deals and, and whether that's marketing or talking to brokers, you'll be able to communicate that more effectively, um, which is really important. So when you're investing out of state, um, you mentioned that, well, first of all, you mentioned you had a vertically integrated property management. I'm assuming that's your, is that your local market? Is that some of your local assets? Local. That's local. Yeah. So when you're going out and, you know, maybe tell me if you, if you have an integrated in Florida or not, but I'm going to assume no, since that seems like it's a little bit outside of your local market. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you do on the asset management side um, to make sure that, you know, your, your properties are performing well, that your property managers are doing their job? You know, maybe that's the KPIs you look at. Maybe that's uh, conversations on some kind of, you know, uh, regularly scheduled basis. You know, how do you actually manage that process from out of state? Yeah, actually, I don't. <laughs> to, be, to be great, <laughs> I don't. Um, so when I mentioned the boots on the ground, when we do a deal in a different market, that's part of what we're looking for. We're looking for someone local who can play that that primary asset manager role because I think it's important. You need to have be able to shoot over to the property, take a look at it. I mean, certainly you can go over numbers and hop on weekly calls and things like that. But um, I think in this case, for us at least, we're at the stage where we're still comfortable having somebody in that market who can oversee it, who knows the market really well, who can talk to the property management company, who can meet at the property, who can go and talk to contractors as needed. So I think that's an important part. And that's something that if we're going to invest out of market for us, it's it's our number one thing. We're not going to invest in a market unless we have someone local who can play that asset manager role. Um, now in our properties locally, and when we do work with those people, we do typically have kind of a standard call. Typically it's a week weekly call or every other week call, depending on what work is being done to the property. And you go through everything. You go through the, the key data points, you go through the key metrics. And it's just like going back to corporate America for me. You have a status update. Hey, what's going on here? We say we're going to renovate three units this week. How are we doing? You know, and you just kind of go through those things. And you have to kind of hold people accountable, but then also recognize that there's things that they can't control and just manage that accordingly. Gotcha. So uh, when you're actually structuring these deals, um, you know, with your boots on the ground, I mean, what is, what does that look like on the general partnership side? Um, you know, is obviously they're taking care of asset management and managing the property managers. What are some other divisions of labor that you have structured with these partners? And, and what does the actual deal structure look like in relation to, you know, what you're bringing to the table and how you're compensated and what they're bringing to, to the table and how they're compensated? Yeah, that's all going to be a little bit different, right? Deal by deal. And yeah. it's going to really depend on, uh, like you said, what is the specific role? I mean, typically our role is going to be a combination of marketing, both marketing research, ongoing marketing, and then uh, investor relations. So really communications with investors, um, helping to you know pull together capital as needed for, for deals. Um, and then just like you mentioned, a little bit of asset management, advisory roles. Um, when we're doing a deal out of our market, that's not our primary function, but we certainly want to, you know, understand what's happening, weigh in with our partners, make sure we're providing some guidance, um, and providing kind of, uh, some feedback and direction on that front. Um, and then the roles are, I mean, as far as equity, that's always going to be split based on, you know, whatever you negotiate and the role that you play and kind of depends on whose deal, you know, who finds a deal, you know, what role are they asking people to play and things of that nature. So that's always going to be a little bit different. Gotcha. And, and if someone's going to go, you know, try and replicate maybe what you're doing where they want to find boots on the ground in a market that they haven't previously invested in um, and, and, you know, maybe loosely follow the, the structure that you've put together with some of your partners, what are some, what are some tips you might have for someone um, when they're looking to maybe find a partner or start developing partnerships out of state? Yeah, I think the first thing is you, you have to figure out, are you kind of the A role or the B role? And what I mean by that is, are you finding the deal in that market and then looking for someone local to run it? Or are you going to partner with someone else who's looking for deals in that market and you're going to partner with them as they run it? 
um, because that the roles are going to be very, very different. You know, if you're going to basically look for someone boots on the ground, then you can decide how much equity are you giving up, right? Because if you're finding the deal, if you're doing all the work, you're going to be the one putting it under contract, then you can determine, you know, hey, are you going to give up an equity slice to this local person to, to be an asset manager? Um, or what exactly, are you just going to pay somebody or what are you going to do, right? Versus if you're planning on partnering someone else who's already doing deals in that market, then you can figure out, okay, I'm going to come in. Here's where I add value. Here's what I can do for the team. Here's how our partnership would work. And I think you need to figure that out before you have a deal. You know, if you're doing this while you have a deal, it gets a little murky at that point. But if you can talk to people, connect, figure out the types of people you want to work with, figure out personalities, then you can determine whether or not a partnership would work. Where's the market at? Who's the local person in the market? What's that compensation split going to be roughly? What are the roles and responsibilities? And then you can find that deal or that property that makes the most sense. Got it. So, you know, when someone's trying to find someone to, to start developing that relationship with, um, you know, maybe you can talk about how you found them personally, you know, your, your boots on the ground and your markets that you're investing in Florida. I mean, is this just networking online? I mean, is there any intentional method that you use to go out and find partners that you might want to work with and start developing relationships with, or, um, or did it just develop organically in your business? Um, you know, what, yeah. what, what's the split there? It's a great question. I mean, for us, we're very active, right? We're attending events, you know, when, when you can. So we're attending events. We're on virtual events. Um, we are, you know, on podcasts. We have our podcast. We are doing meetups. So we're constantly talking to people. You know, we're in our, our mentoring group. So we have a lot of conversations every day, you know, every month, every week. So be, through that, you get a sense of what people are looking for, what skill sets they have, what experience they have. And you know, that first deal, we met that that partner at a conference. We're at a conference together. My wife actually, um, you know, had a conversation. We ended up going to dinner with this guy. And we just decided that, hey, you know, seems like a good person to, to work with. If you find something, let's stay close. We might have an interest in working together. And it started really high level like that. You know, more of a, hey, if you find something, we might have an interest. It wasn't a firm uh, commitment. It wasn't something where he said, hey, do you want to partner up? I mean, it was just more of a, hey, you know, good vibe here. Let's see what happens. And for us, that's kind of a more natural way to play it. So we get a chance to really get to know the person. We want to get to know the person over a few months and understand the way they look at deals, the way they look at opportunities. What is their management style? What's their communication style? Do they feel trustworthy and reputable? You know, those kind of things. And once we get a comfort level there, then we can start talking about, potentially working together. But for us, it's always been organic and natural. It's never been deal-led. It's always been a conversation where we've kind of loosely agreed to work together prior to having a deal live on the table that we would we would um, underwrite or go into together. So that's always worked well for us just because I think the people are most important because even those conversations they tell you the markets that they're looking in. Well, either you like those markets or you don't. So if I don't like the markets that someone's in, I'm probably not going to volunteer to work together. Right. So, you know, those are kind of the, the things that we talk about there. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what you said is really important to, to just understand. Right. I mean, number one, you just have to be active. That's how you meet partners. You know, you don't set out going, okay, I'm, I, I need a partner. Let me go find a partner. Like that's not how it works. You, it, it does develop organically from being active and putting yourself in the position to, to chat with the people that you might want to work with. Um, you know, and then when that, when that partner does kind of raise their hand and you think you might want to work together, like you said, it's, it's a casual conversation rather than let's commit to something, right. You know, because that, that, that never works. And especially in these larger deals, there's a lot of partnerships that develop on a deal by deal basis. Um, and I think a lot of people have a misconception that partnerships are a little bit more permanent or they're a little bit more high level, but you can partner with people on deals and, and see how it goes. You know, maybe you do one deal and it, it doesn't work out so well, or it doesn't work, how you, work out how you'd like. So you just don't have to partner in another deal and, and there's no, you know, the, the, the negative repercussions aren't so massive. Um, so I think there's a lot of great advice in there, you know, just be active and put yourself in the, in the positions to find the people to work with. So with that being said, um, you know, what are some of your goals over the next, let's call it six to 12 months here in your business? Um, you know, any new markets or any new uh, asset classes, or are you just continuing to execute on what you guys have been doing in the past year? 
Yeah, I mean, we're still actively looking for deals in multifamily. So that's something that we're focusing in on a lot. And, uh, you know, looking at analyzing deals all the time and just making sure that we are continuing to refine our systems and processes and adding value, you know, any chance we get. And the biggest thing is on the, you know, not so much on the, the multifamily side, but we have our Midwest Summit, which is, you know, by the time this comes out, I think the summit will have passed, but that's July 25th and 26th. So, you know, we are connecting with hundreds of other investors and continue to provide the right resources and going back to networking. You know, we've got hundreds of people who are going to be coming together who are all interested in growing their real estate portfolios. And we've created this event. This is our third year doing it. First year doing it virtual, but third year doing the event. So we're really excited about that. And I mentioned our our consulting. So we've kind of been helping other people get into it and really excited to to see the growth that our clients are having in that space and just understanding more about what it takes to truly attract capital and educating people on that. And we've kind of come up with a system that we like to talk about when it gets into how to actually attract capital and the six things that are needed. That's great. And I want to ask you a quick follow-up on that too. So you mentioned you started getting into some consulting. Um, you know, without you just giving away all your secret sauce here that, that people pay for, <laughs> um, what do you find are, are some of the things that, that new investors who are looking at the, to get into syndication, what do they struggle with, you know, you know, most commonly and, and how do you typically find that they can overcome some of those things? That's a, it's a yeah. big question, but <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, um, the, the big one is one that I think a lot of people suffer with. And right now there's information everywhere, right? Um, so there's, there's a sea of information and most people are drowning in information, but they are thirsty for insights. Meaning we can talk about, you know, markets and market data, and you could be looking at market data for years, right? Yeah. And that's not really what you want. <laughs> you don't want just data and data and data. You want insights to tell you, you know, like that neon sign I mentioned, you want that, right? You want, this is the, what you need to pay attention to. This is where you need to invest. These are the decisions you need to make. So I find most people struggle separating information from insights and figuring out what's really useful and practical and actionable versus what's just a nice to know, you know, piece of piece of data. So that's really the big thing, right? Is separating those insights. The other piece is understanding what it really takes to successfully raise capital consistently. And I, I think there's six C's of attracting capital. The first one is confidence. Um, the second one is credibility. The third one is connections. Fourth is going to be your channels, your communications, and then last is consistency. And if we have some time, I can explain it and get into that a little bit more. But those are really the six things that you need to attract capital. And most people, if you're struggling to raise money or if you're starting out and you're trying to figure out how to do it, I promise you, it's something in the six C's that you need to work on. Yeah, if if you do want to spend some time discussing them, I mean, we we have some time. I'd love to hear more about you know maybe what you feel is you know maybe there's a couple of those C's that newer investors have you know struggle with more specifically than maybe the other ones, and we can touch on those. Absolutely, let's break it up into the you know three and three. Okay, so the first three C's: confidence, credibility, and connections. So confidence that comes from your preparedness, your education. Have you been reading? Have you you know um, been listening to podcasts? Have you really prepared yourself to understand deals, terminology, and how comfortable do you feel? Right. So that's your confidence. The credibility is your experience. It doesn't have to be in multifamily investing, but if you have that that's great, right? That's going to pair really well. I mean, that's what I started with, right? was trying to leverage my real estate credibility. Uh, But if you don't have that, maybe you have business credibility. Maybe you have investing credibility in other asset classes, right? Or other segments. So what credibility do you bring to the table? If you don't have credibility, can you bring a team that brings credibility. This is where a mentor comes into play. This is where you know a great property manager or partner comes into play. So credibility is the second C. The third is obviously connections. You know you can't raise money if you don't know who to call or who to reach out to. So you kind of have to have those connections. Um, and then the second C, the second set of three Cs, those are really get into, you know. I think the next level of this, you know, if you just want to reach out to people in your network, those are the first three. If you want to go out and attract capital, then you're going to need channels. So where are you communicating? Are you doing a podcast like this? Are you writing a blog? 
Are you hosting a YouTube video series? So where exactly are you communicating your messages, right? The second is communications or the fifth one, I should say, is communications. What exactly are you saying? What are you communicating to them? Um, do you understand what their pain points are and what their challenges are? And then the last one there is consistency. Are you, you know, excited about this today, but going to disappear in six months? Or have you been working at this for three years, four years, five years? That consistency um, is really key. And, and I'll, I'll illustrate this with a quick story, right? So let's say there's two investors. One is Cam, one is Chris. So Cam really is um, excited. Both Cam and Chris are excited. They've listened to the show right now. They're excited to, to take their, their, their small single family rental portfolio and jump into multifamily, right? Go get big into multifamily syndication. So Cam's got a couple of investors that he's, he's worked with at some point in one of his rentals. And he goes out and he asks them, hey, do you guys want to invest in, in multifamily with me? And they say, ooh, that seems a little risky. No, I'm good. Cam's stuck, okay? So Cam is trying to figure out why you know what does he need to do he, he ran out he called the people that he's worked with before he's not sure why they're not interested so now he's going to more people on his list and he's calling them and he's trying to figure out you know who he can get to invest and that's the approach cam is taking with it versus chris you know chris also has a single family portfolio but chris is taking the time to you know build his confidence listening to this show really understanding, you know, what it takes to put together a good deal. He's put together a team. He's hired a mentor. He has positioned himself to build as much credibility as he can before he starts reaching out to the investors in his network. And he also has decided to create content. Maybe it's just through email, but he's creating content. He's sharing that with people in his audience and he's sharing that on social media. So people are reaching out to him and wanting to learn more and he's emailing them information. So then he reaches out to them and asks them if they would be interested in seeing more about a deal. So people are now looking at his deal. So when he has a deal, he is already set up with a potential network beyond just a handful of people who knew him as a single family investor, but he's explained to them why he made a transition from being a single family investor to a multifamily investor and how he's looking to create generational wealth for his family. And he wants to share that opportunity with others that he cares about in his network. Now that is going to help Chris attract capital and do so consistently and on a much larger scale than Cam's going to do. So that's really what we're working with is how do you get your story together? How do you stack the table, stack the bricks up in a way that allows you to connect and engage with potential investors and grow your audience, grow your network, and ultimately do more deals? Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable, right? I mean, that's literally, that's the playbook. You just have to go out and execute on it. And I mean, those six C's are probably transferable to other pieces within the real estate business as well in terms of you know, building credibility with brokers and building a deal funnel. Um, and, you know, if you're doing maybe smaller deals, you're not raising money, that probably is going to help you find private lending capital maybe or or some kind of capital that isn't, in, in, you know, from equity investors. Oh, that's great. I mean, you know, rewind and listen to that a couple of times. I'm certainly going to be writing that down after the show. Um, so we're coming up here on, on the end of the show. I got a final question that I ask every guest. Um, and basically... I want you to think about if you were starting your business over again, and you know maybe we rewind here to to, to 2014, 2015. You're, you're you're heading down this journey. Um, you know if if you knew what you knew now back then when you were starting out, you know what would you do differently, if if anything? Uh, the number one thing I would do is I would not try to do it by myself. Um, I spent years trying to really do it all by myself. And it took about a year of analyzing deals and not finding one that worked before I seriously considered partnering and being on a team as opposed to being the star of a one-man team, right? Um, or you know, a two-person team with my wife and I. And I would say if I could go back to 2015, I would open up my mindset to say, listen, add value, join wherever you can get in Find a good team, find people you trust and want to do do business with and add value to them and grow that way. And that way you remove the pressure from you trying to do every aspect of this. Because listen, this is hard. There's so much that goes into multifamily, especially from a syndication, to find the deal, to analyze the deal, to put in the offer, to qualify for the loan, to 
actually manage the deal, hire all of the vendors that you're going to need to oversee it to raise the money if you need to you know, reach out to investors and bring money together, communicate to investors, oversee the accounting and the reporting. There's so much that goes into this. One person can't possibly do this great. Now, one person can do it adequately maybe, but certainly not great, not top notch, not at a business level. No. So if you could step back or if I could step back, that's the thing I would do is really just say, okay, here's what I'm really good at. Can I find one or two potential partners who are good at these other things? That way we can work together to grow this thing further. Yeah, that's great. And I think that that's, you know, applicable to so many uh, segments within the real estate business as well, whether, you know, whether you're just, just starting out and you're trying to do this on a smaller scale or you're trying to do it on a larger scale, seek help because people have done it before you learn from them. And, you know, if you're doing these larger deals and there's room to partner on these deals or to work with people on specific deals, that's just going to accelerate the learning curve. Um, so this has been an awesome show. Where, where can people find out more about you if they want to connect with you or, or, um, or your company? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to casmancapital.com. Uh, on there, we have a sample deal package. So if anybody is interested in either actively investing or passively investing, and you kind of want to see what a sample deal looks like, I mean, we talked a lot about deal structure on this show. So if you want to see what that looks like on, on paper and get a better sense of uh, what that actually entails, you can download our sample deal and that'll allow you to get a better sense of what that is. You'll also join our mailing list to get more tips and updates from me. Um, the other place you can go is to our podcast, Target Market Insights, the multifamily marketing show that is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's a top 10 multifamily podcast. So we're really excited about that. But definitely make sure you check that out whenever you get a chance. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks again for coming on the show. And I'll be sure to, uh, to link all that stuff you just mentioned down in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. And I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show and give some value to your audience. Absolutely, man. Thanks again. to the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. See you next time.